month. A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 29, starting with verse 15. Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, starting with verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
The Gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of, the great, one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, I was assigned the PG-13 week um, of scriptures, so um, yeah, we'll have to, uh, yeah, I I saw blushing going on. Um, Well, I'm really excited to be with you, Um, only, you know, when, when Father Preston asked me if I would be interested in doing this, only in this group would I be interested in doing this. So I am, I am really thankful that, um, that I have this group to be in front of. So I have a confession right from the beginning of our time together today. I am a revenge movie fanatic. I guess you could call them payback movies. I love any movie where the wronged or the innocent protagonist comes back and makes the antagonist or the villain pay some of my favorites are The Count of Monte Cristo, all the many Oceans movies, 11, 12, even 13. And who would dare come up against Denzel in the Equalizer movies? I am sure you can think of one of these kind of movies that you also enjoy. So as we begin to untangle the Genesis scripture passage today, my first instinct was to look at it as a payback story. Jacob, son of Isaac and grandson of Abraham, has always been a man of conflict, and he continues to be so in our passage today. He deceived his father and cheated his brother Esau out of his firstborn birthright. As he enters into a relationship with his soon-to-be father-in-law times two, uh, we realize he may have met his match in Laban. But I realized I need to hesitate before assigning roles of hero or villain in this story. If I truly examine my own heart, I will find that I have lived a life of contradictory motives. Above all, it is important to realize that God is ultimately the hero of this story. As Walter Brueggemann writes, the purpose of God is somehow operative in places of scandal and deception. Precisely in this doubtful character, the promise of God is being fulfilled. 
if we look back a couple of generations, we'll see that God had made a very specific plan and very specific promises to Abraham, and these will continue to be fulfilled. So let's look at today's story. Part of God's promise was that he told Jacob that Jacob would return to the land of his forefathers, but first he would have heirs, thus the PG-13. If we back up a few verses prior to today's passage, we can better set the scene. We find that Jacob has entered into the land of the eastern peoples. He comes across some shepherds and begins to ask if they know his, where his extended family and are they nearby. Verse 9 reads, While he was still talking with them, Rachel came up with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, and he watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are flesh, my own flesh and blood. To this point, things are really going well for Jacob. His meeting with Laban's family is initially harmonious. At this time, the reader is also told that Rachel has an older sister, Leah. Some biblical translations tell us that Leah has weak eyes. Scholars are not exactly sure what this description fully means. And the word can also mean soft, tender, gentle. So this may not actually be a negative description. The writer goes on, though, to place her in comparison to Rachel, who is said to have a lovely figure and is beautiful. David Guzik writes that this comparison of Rachel and Leah and their respective beauty is a small clue of what was probably a complicated, conflict-filled, and competitive family life. Unfortunately, this sets up the first biblical love triangle. Will Gaffney goes on to say, whether Rachel and Leah had a difficult relationship prior to their marriage is not revealed in the text. But there is a suggestion that Leah was regularly devalued in the text. She was devalued with her sister in the way that they are described. Laban's deception, combined with the assessment that Rachel was more desirable, including to Jacob, set the stage for a sibling rivalry that would plague Jacob and populate Israel all at the same time. At this point, we do need to remember that the author of Genesis is writing from the perspective of the men involved in the story, especially from Jacob's vantage point. In that culture, in that era, women's thoughts and perspectives were not explored or considered very often. We are not granted the opportunity to know how Rachel and Leah felt about this swirling drama of family dysfunction going on around them. We are never told if either of these women even loved Jacob. In verse 15, things abruptly shift between Laban and Jacob. Laban introduces the idea of payment for Jacob's work. His initial suggestion is not unfriendly, as he seems to want to make sure Jacob is taken care of. Jacob does not have the required dowry, and he wishes to marry Rachel, so he offers to work for Laban for seven years in return for her. His terms are very specific, and there is no ambiguity. The cordial conversation, though, turns in verses 21 through 27. 
Seven years have passed, and Jacob is ready to marry Rachel. In verse 25, reread the summary of this scene. Laban has thrown a wedding feast. It has likely gone late into the night, and it is dark. At least we hope that is it, because there's got to be some reason why something happened in which Jacob mistakenly shares his honeymoon with the wrong woman. Laban, the new villain in our story, has provided what the reader might view as a poetic justice for our old deceiver Jacob. The tables have turned. But again, let's be careful and not view this as a payback movie like I would like to. These were real people in real time making real time decisions. Laban, like Jacob, and like all of us, was a complex and multi-layered person. Once again, though, we do need to rightly acknowledge that Rachel, Leah, and eventually their maids, Bilhah and Zilpah, are not ascribed agency in this reading. Did Leah resist her father's scheme? Did Rachel? We do not know, for the women are only given away and not allowed or given a choice. When I was growing up in Sydney school, this entire story was told like it was a love story. Reading it today, knowing what I know as an adult, it feels like a reality-based TV show. So much family dysfunction. So before we leave this passage, let's consider what we could reflect upon. The story speaks of the complexity of our world and our own interactions with one another. We are flawed, and we have layered emotions and motives. We may feel like we are a web of hope, trust, and generosity tangled up with anxiety, shame, and selfishness. It is crucial, though, to realize that God not only continued working through the stories of Jacob and Laban, but that Jesus, walking alongside of us today, works through our own strengths and weaknesses. We can see this same presence of the triune God in the Romans passage we heard earlier. One paraphrased version of Romans 8.26 says, And in a similar way, the Holy Spirit takes hold of us in our human frailty to empower us in our weakness. For example, at times we don't even know how to pray. We don't even know the words. We don't even know what to ask for. But the Holy Spirit rises up within us to super intercede on our behalf, pleading to God with emotional sighs or groanings, too deep for words. God, the searcher of the heart, knows fully our longings, yet he also understands the desires of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit passionately pleads before God for us, his holy ones, in perfect harmony with God's plan and our destiny. These words fill me with great hope. We all experience times of deep spiritual confusion, guilt, fear, perhaps anger. Sometimes we just don't know what to pray. The words escape us. The message translation says, meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, and I don't know about you, but there have been times that I have been tired in the waiting. God's spirit is right alongside helping us along. This Holy Spirit is the same one Jesus talks about in John 14 as he speaks to his disciples, and the message translation says, The Friend, capital F, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send at my request, will make everything plain to you. He will remind you of all things. I'm leaving you well and whole. Shalom. That's my parting gift to you. Peace. I don't leave you the way you're used to being left, feeling abandoned or bereft, so don't be upset and don't be distraught. 
Shalom in Hebrew means so much more than what we think of it. It's way more than just peace. It means wholeness, wellness, safety, happiness, favor, completeness, security, contentedness, tranquility, rest. The noun shalom is derived from the verbal root word shalom, which means to restore, in the sense of replacing or providing what is needed in order to make someone complete and whole physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. Shalom is used to describe those who have been provided all that is needed to break off all authority that would attempt to bind us to chaos. This, this is what Jesus offers us as his parting gift, and all of this is through the living presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do want to focus for just a minute on Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 has been something that I have occasionally had an aversion to. The The verse goes, all we know and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It is one of the most often quoted scriptures by Christians, but it can be taken dangerously out of context. Some Christians use this verse as an attempt to suppress or hold back anger, anger toward God, others. It is often used as a trite cliche, as if we were saying, don't feel so bad. Don't feel bad about your loss. God will work it together for good. For many people, this verse creates confusion. Dr. Kelly Capick asked the questions, where is God to be found when everything hurts and the words that others intend as encouragement fall flat like dead cliches? How can God work everything for good if I or someone I love is hurting or suffering or deals with chronic illness or pain? Dr. Capick goes on, many Christians' circles frame the narrative of faith in a way that lead people to believe that the faithful will escape or overcome every serious difficulty they face. Even if they don't explicitly say such things, our triumphalism becomes obvious in our frustration and impatience, both with ourselves and with others, when life doesn't go as smoothly as we expect. At some point, we may start to realize how much we have fused the good news of the gospel with expectations of health, affluence, and consistent success over all difficulties. Using this verse as a weapon to scripture slap suffering people because they are not towing the prosperous Christian party line is not the way of Jesus. Whatever theological concepts we believe as individuals or come up with, for suffering and the reality of evil. For the one who is suffering, it is always perceived as evil and not good. Benjamin Kremer advises us that in times of crisis and despair, Christianity should sound like, my heart is breaking for you, and should not sound like the cliched and hurtful statement that everything happens for a reason. So let's re-examine this verse and maybe turn some of the false theology around. Notice that Paul does not say that every single thing will turn out right for each person. A paraphrased version of this verse states, so we are convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven. I love woven. Together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. For we are his and have been called to fulfill his designed purpose. For he knew all about us before we were born and destined us from the beginning to share the likeness of his son. 
The good that God is moving us towards is salvation or belonging, belonging to God's people, to God, and eventually sharing in God's life. God sees our entire future before we do, just like a person might see an ant on an anthill. You can see where it's going. It doesn't know where it's going, but you know where it's going. And that is how God can sees our life. In Psalm 139.5, the psalmist tells us God goes before us into our future. He comes behind us from our past. And all the while, his hand of blessing is upon our head. So Christians do like to say God is in control. But the kind of control that God possesses in the scriptures is not that one that means he controls every event. The root metaphor for how God relates to the world is not power, as in being creator, big C, but love, as in being a parent. If God is seen primarily and only as the creator, he can often be seen then as being mechanical and merciless. God must be seen primarily as father, as a nurturing mother, as a loving parent. When we think about power in our culture, we often think of, you know, what would Superman do? Why does God not snatch his child out of the way of a backing car, stop a bullet, prevent atrocities in a Nazi death camp? God is more powerful than Superman, right? This kind of power is the quantitative magnification of the kind of power that we use when we want to conform something to our will. God's power is different. God's power is based on God's creative and enduring eternal love for us. God's power is not lesser. It is different. K.J. Ramsey writes in her book, This Too Shall Last, that the chasm between who God says he is and who we experience him to be, especially when hard things keep happening, it is not crossed by whipping our minds into submission with more theological facts or quickly trying to name suffering as gift. She says that our suffering only makes sense alongside the story of the risen, reigning Christ. In Christ, the suffering we want to escape becomes the place more fully participating in the reality of the kingdom of God. Our union with Christ does not rescue us from our earthly existence. Rather, it plants our feet on the arid soil of suffering and makes it fertile ground. In the place of your weakness, Jesus stands secure in the Father's love for you. In the circumstances and memories that drive us to doubt, Jesus never wavers in remembering we are loved by God. As we leave our time together today, let us remember that an indwelling spirit of God is speaking to God, the Father. He is speaking on our behalf as the Father is weaving every detail of our lives together to bring that good into our lives because of his deep, deep love for us. May we all live and all be people of shalom.